Well, we're continuing our series uh, through Luke. Uh, we are now in uh, Luke 17. Uh, Jesus, as uh, Sam has indicated over the last uh, several chapters, is in a, a period of the, the book of Luke called the travel narratives. So Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem uh, where he's going to die. He's constantly reminding his people of this. Luke is indicating that every time Jerusalem is mentioned, it's this foreshadowing of what's to come, that Jesus is traveling towards his death. So the, the, the themes and the, what Jesus says seems to ratchet up in intensity. And here we're looking at a, a, a live-action miracle that happens. But underneath what's going on are these themes that we've been talking about so far. Uh, and Jesus is really trying to get us to think about these things. So if you would please turn to Luke 17. We're going to be in Luke 17, 11 through 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words are going to be posted uh, behind me. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, that you are here with us. God, that you have called us into your presence to worship you, and you promised to speak, Lord. And so I pray this morning, at this time, your spirit would be moving in our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say. Be working to transform us, Lord, more into the image of Jesus, and you, Lord, would be glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. When Ann and I first uh, got married, we moved into an apartment in this uh, neighborhood in San Diego called South Park, and it was a great space. We loved uh, this apartment. Uh, it was an old building. It had this kind of vintage feel to it. I think the building was sometime in the, from the 30s. We loved the neighborhood we were in. It's one of our favorites. There's plenty of space for us. I mean, 900 square feet, which believe it or not, in San Diego for a one-bedroom apartment is plenty of space. We were you know, and it fit our budget. It was surprisingly affordable, which you'll find out why. We loved it. Until about nine months in, we started doing some deep, you know, cleaning, pulling couches out, sweeping under them. And behind one of our couches in our living room, we found black mold growing on the walls. And I don't know if you've had this experience before. When you see something, you kind of can't unsee it. And as soon as we knew what to look for, we started finding it all over the apartment, behind our bed. We found it in one of our closets. We, of course, found it in our bathroom. 
of course, cleaned the walls, but we knew that something deeper was going on. There was a deeper problem than just what was on the exterior. We even talked to some of our friends who just so happened to work professionally with mold remediation companies and even hired a professional to come out and do some tests, you know, look at the places where we had found mold, run some diagnostic tests, and even he said, I would bet my license that this stuff is growing in the walls. We couldn't just bust a hole open in the wall that would be breaking our lease. But our property management company and the landlord were very hands-off about it. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to spend the money. They just dealt with the exteriors. They cleaned it. They painted it for us, but they just called it a wash. But from professional recommendation, and even our own friends said, it's, it's, it's too deep. So we opted to leave. Unfortunately, the wonderful place that we love so much became so ugly and even dangerous for us in a moment. And the cost of, of dealing with that damage was way more than we could afford or even worth dealing with. So we left. I say that because there's a theme here that's, that's even deeper than that. We've talked about this before, how the Scripture talks about how there's a real problem that resides inside of us, that runs deep inside of us. It's pervasive. It's dark. Scripture calls this sin, and sin can be found deep inside of us. But the need to cleanse us and to, uh, to, to deal with that problem is so much greater than what you and I can deal with, so much bigger than what we are able to clean. So we need a deep remediation. We need someone else to come and cleanse us from the inside. No amount of, of external work, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, will fix the problem that's within us. Someone else has to come and do that for us. And that's what we're going to see here. In this live miracle moment, there are these underlying principles and themes throughout it. And that is that Jesus has provided the deep remediation that he himself has paid for. And this remediation transforms our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Jesus has provided the deep remediation that he himself has paid for. And this remediation transforms our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. There are two things I want to look at with that. One is what is, the, what is underneath the surface? What's the real problem underneath when you peel back the walls and look what's going on inside. What's, what's going on underneath? And then what's the deep remediation that we need? Again, this is during uh, the travel narratives of Jesus' time. Uh, some of these themes we've seen before, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. What Jesus is walking into are, are multiple tension points that he's coming that that are signified and Luke kind of points at. One is these cultural tensions. Uh, Jesus is said is in between these two places, Samaria and Galilee. But that's not just a geographical point. I think Luke is pointing at something deeper. If you've been with us for some time, this isn't the first time Jesus has talked or we've heard about Samaritans. Uh, if you were here for uh, the uh, story of the Good Samaritan, uh, some of these themes were talked about. But this was a group 
that was very despised by the Jewish people. They were considered illegitimate Jews, descended from Jews who had married foreign spouses. And they were despised for that. The Jews thought that they were inferior. And so here is a people group uh, that is despised by the Jews. In fact, when a Jewish person needed to get from point A to point B and Samaria was in between, they'd go around. (laughs) They'd make a detour. They didn't even bother passing through. So there's these cultural tensions between the Jewish people, you know, in, in Galilee and in Jerusalem and the Samaritan people. There's also a kind of a religious tension here because the Samaritans believe that God dwelt in their center place, Mount Gerizim. That's where they had their temple. That's where they worshiped. But the Jews believe that God lived in Jerusalem. That's where they built their temple, and that's where they worshiped. So there was this kind of religious tension between the two. But then even bigger than that, there's the seemingly moral tension that Jesus is walking into. And that comes with the lepers. Leprosy uh, could have meant a, a whole host of various skin diseases and deformities. Some were life-threatening, some weren't, but they changed a person's status at that time. We're going to talk about something that's a little bit technical, but I think it's really important. And I'll do my best to just broadly brush over it without getting into the details. Go all the way back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, God had set in place a number of rules and regulations that he wanted his people to follow. One of the reasons for that is, is that God is holy in the utmost sense, and he wants his people to be holy like he is. So he sets these laws and regulations down to show the holiness and obedience needed to be welcomed by him. Because we need that. We need that perfect holiness to be welcomed by God. He set these down to remind people of that, the need for them to be holy. Within those rules, there were these rules called ritual purity laws. I know that's kind of a big word or big words. What that meant was that there were these things that God had called clean and unclean. There were certain practices, there were certain foods, there were certain conditions that would be considered either clean or unclean. If an Israelite at that time had participated or touched or consumed something that was considered unclean, he or she was therefore considered ritually unclean, meaning that he or she could not enter into the worship of God until they set and 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 participate in these ritualistic practices to make themselves ritually clean. One of those things that was considered unclean was leprosy. If someone had a a certain skin disease, they were supposed to go to the priest at that time, and the priest would examine them, and depending on how extensive or how great that condition was, he or she would be deemed clean or unclean. If they were unclean, they would have to be put out of the camp, and they would have to go through a certain amount of of rituals. They would go back to the priest and start the process over again. I know that's a lot, but here's something that's really important about those things. God was trying to show his people at that time the need for a deep cleaning, the need for a, 
a remediation that everybody needed, no matter who they were, no matter what they did. And these practices, these laws were to show them that. They were to give them a visual picture, something that they could experience, something that they could see, to show them that all of them needed a deep remediation cleaning. The other thing is, it did not mean that those who were considered unclean, like a leper, was any worse or inferior to those who were considered clean. They weren't any more moral. They weren't any more accepted by God. Again, it was a visual picture for Israel to see and experience, to know that all of them needed a cleaning. A leper wasn't any worse off in God's eyes than someone who wasn't. But the Jews at this time in Jesus' day believed that lepers were inferior to them. Lepers were morally inferior. In fact, they believed that the, the condition that they had was because of their sin. That lepers were being punished because of what they've done. So lepers were incredibly despised at that time. They were cast out. They weren't allowed in public spaces. They weren't allowed in the temple. In fact, a leper would go around with a bell, ringing it whenever he or she came in the presence of someone else and would have to yell, unclean, so that the person would avoid them. This is the group that Jesus is entering into. There's cultural tension. There's religious tension. And even bigger than that, there's this culturally moral tension that's in front of them. So they come to Jesus and ask him to have mercy on them, to clean them, heal us, Lord. They call him master, which is a big, uh, you know, starting a shift in Luke's gospel of showing who Jesus is, that Jesus isn't just a man, that Jesus hasn't just come to perform these, these healings. It's so much greater than that, that Jesus is actually master superior. I mean, for them... They certainly knew that Jesus was able to do something for them. But even greater than that, Luke is indicating that Jesus is master over all things. So they come to him. And he says, show yourself to the priest, which as we mentioned before would have been a practice in the Old Testament. Someone who had this condition was to be sent to a priest to be examined and deemed clean or unclean. Maybe he's testing their faith. You know, Jesus and Previous times when someone is sick and needs healing, he'll heal them on the spot. But he doesn't do that here. He might be testing their trust in him. And it says that as they went, they were cleansed. That word for, for cleansed is looking back at just like they were, they were now ritually clean, meaning they were now able to go back into society. They were able to, to enter in uh, to their families, to their friends, to the public spaces, and not be despised, not be shamed, not be kicked out, which is no small thing. I mean, think about it. You know, they realized what this meant for them. They had status. They had dignity now. They could be accepted by society. They didn't have to be shunned anymore. I mean, thinking about it, I mean, this is no short of a miracle, what Jesus has done for them and the weight that came with it. All of this anticipation and fear and shame for what they were experiencing, Jesus healed them of that and cleansed them. But even still, even still with that reality, which is amazing, 
there's so much, there's something so much deeper needed for them. So much more that is needed for them than just simply outward ritual cleaning. Not simply just being accepted by society. Not simply just having status in the world. Which again is no small thing. God honors that. God enjoys giving us good things, but there's something so much deeper that they need, and only one man knows it. Before we get into that, you know, there's, there's times in our lives, even as Christians, or whether you're Christian or not, unchristian, sometimes we focus on and think that we need to do something or contribute something to be welcomed and known and loved by each other, and for us Christians, welcomed and known by God. There are things that you and I need to do. And if we don't do those things, God must not love us. God must not welcome us. God must not welcome or or want us to be with him. There are all kinds of things we could put in that category. You know, there's spiritual disciplines, we call them. Reading our Bible. Praying. And when we're, you know, fall off the horse a little bit, we get bummed out and ashamed and worried and think, oh man, you know, this week just wasn't very good for me. God must be at the very least disappointed with me. And so we come into worship and come before God with all of this shame and worry. I mean, look at our past week. Look at what I've done. Look at the things I've thought of. Look at the things I've participated in. And just feel so much shame and think that, of course, God despises us. We might see ourselves like those lepers. We're worthy of just being cast out. I mean, the truth is, all of us are in one sense. that We are sinful. We are worthy of, of God's anger. But there's something so much greater uh, for us. You know, and sometimes the other reality is that we could think we're actually pretty good. <laughs> we're actually doing a pretty good job. I mean, this week, you know, was, was a pretty good one. I did, I did all right. I mean, I would at least give myself like an A minus. And then when we start, you know, lifting ourselves up because of what we've done or what we've accomplished or whatever this week's looked like that we've contributed to, that we look at other people and say, I don't know about them. I don't know if they really fit the mold. They haven't really done what I think they should do to either be loved by me or certainly, you know, they need some special amount of grace from God. They really need Jesus. We can start to compare ourselves. There are all kinds of expectations we might put on other people, whether we realize it or not. What they look like, how they dress, what's their income, what's their education level, what's their theological convictions. What's their political allegiance? There are all these standards and things we might put on other people. And if they don't quite fit what we want for them, it affects how we see them. It affects how we relate to them. It affects how we connect and how we love them. And we're all guilty of that, myself included. I mean, there are plenty of standards I find myself putting on other people. We all have to look back and think on the ways in which we find ourselves superior to other people just like these Jews did, just like these Jews did to these lepers, seeing them as inferior, casting them out. What are the groups? What are the people? What are the names in your mind that you say, not them? No way. 
but there's a remediation needed that all of us needed. The reality is, friends, no matter what you and I have done, no matter what our life looks like, every single one of us are in need of the grace of Jesus, period. No matter what your life looks like, and no one of us is in greater need of that than the other. All of us, all of us are sinners. All of us have that darkness inside of us that needs to be dealt with, that only God can deal with. No amount of cleaning, no amount of performance, nothing can change that. But there is a hope for us. There is that remediation that Jesus offers this man. This one man that understands and realizes what's just happened to him. And who did it? Who is the one who did that for him? He's the one person that turns around and he runs to Jesus. And it's really interesting. This time, the Jewish people, and even in the Old Testament, it's true that God had set these systems in place where he promised to be with his people. He had his people create a space for him where he said, I'm going to dwell here. I'm going to live here. And this is where you come to worship me. This is called the tabernacle at some times. It was called the temple and other periods of the Old Testament. So the Jews at this time believed this is where we would worship God. We go to the temple, whether it was in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. This is where we go to worship God. This man doesn't go there. He goes to Jesus. He doesn't go to the temple. He runs to the feet of Jesus. And it's a clear act of worship. I mean, it says he's praising God aloud, which is even at that time would have been understood. I mean, he just had a miracle experience. He's just uncontrollably praising the Lord. But then it says he falls at the feet of Jesus, thanking him. I mean, it links those two things together of, of him praising God, and where does he do it? At the feet of Jesus, which would have been shocking for people. It's this change of understanding of where God is to be found. That this is change of the guard, as it were, where Jesus, God in the flesh, has come. He is the one who is to be worshipped. He's the one who's, who's come to save his people. And God can know, or, or people can know God through knowing Jesus. You know, and then Luke pulls the rug out. Because who is this man? Not only was he a leper, but he's a Samaritan. It's almost like, you know, Luke is drawing the people in with all these things. It'd be like, okay, yeah, wow, that's, that's interesting. But then he just pulls the rug out and says, by the way, this man who's pious and is worshiping God is a Samaritan. The one you think is inferior. The one you think is despicable. He's the one that actually gets it. He's the one that comes before God in true act of worship. And Jesus points this out. I mean, he, he, there's a clear indication that this man gets something that the other men don't. That Jesus says, where are the other nine? Which assumes that he thinks this man is doing something he should be. The other nine don't seem to get it. You know, maybe they really did just, were just enwrapped in, wow, look at, my life is totally changed. I could be accepted. I could be loved by people. I could be known. You know, all the dignity and status that came with them being cleansed. But that was the only thing they thought of. Their current circumstance was changed, and that was good enough for them. And sometimes we can do that with God. God changes our circumstance, and we kind of walk away without thinking much about it. 
We kind of want God to just rearrange the furniture of our lives so our life would look the way that we want it to look. Do things that we want him to do without understanding what that means for us and who he is and what he's doing for us. But this man found something so much better than just societal acceptance. As amazing as that is, as being welcomed by others, as amazing that is, this man found something so much better. And Jesus says it. Jesus gives him it. The very end, he says, your faith has made you well. That doesn't mean that this man just had enough faith to heal himself. You just need enough faith and God is going to do what you ask him to do. What Jesus is saying, that word for made well, could mean just physical healing, but it has a much broader term than that. It also means being saved, being rescued. It has this deeper meaning of, of, of being saved from something. That this man not just experienced outward cleansing, being accepted by people, but now he experienced that deep cleaning that he needed. The remediation, the uprooting of the darkness in his heart that all of us have. He experienced that, and Jesus acknowledges it. But he doesn't experience through, you know, doing the right things. He does it by trusting in someone else. He does it by depending on someone else to do that for him. Because he knows he does, there's, there's nothing he can do but praise God. There's nothing he can do but thank him for what he's done. He understands his need is greater than what he is able to do. You know, there's something missing in this that I think is really important. And I didn't catch it when I first read this. It it has to do with another system that God set up. In the Old Testament, God had set up for his people something called the sacrificial system to signify and show the amount of cleansing and the cost that was there for people's sin in order to be accepted and really cleansed by God, it came at a great cost. That sin is talked about, the the cost of sin is death. That God in his holiness requires death to pay for sin. But the mercy of God, he had set this system in place for animals to be killed instead of his people out of an act of mercy to clean them to show them the amount of work and and the cost that was there to clean his people. But it was a system that they kept having to to offer these sacrifices throughout the week. And it was in anticipation, looking ahead to a final sacrifice that was coming, to a final offering that would be the once and for all offering so that no other sacrifice would be offered. No other sacrifice would be needed. This one sacrifice would be enough to pay the cost that was needed for that deep cleaning. When a leper in the Old Testament was considered clean by the priest, he was supposed to offer a sacrifice. The priest would offer a sacrifice for him, and then that man or woman would come into God's presence and and, and be able to worship. 
This man comes to Jesus. Jesus acts like a priest, pronounces him clean, but not just on the outside, on the inside. But now he's, he's, he's fully clean. But there's no sacrifice offered. Jesus doesn't offer a sacrifice which a priest would have. Why? Jesus is that final sacrifice. Jesus is that one that for thousands of years Israel was anticipating that every time they offered up a sacrifice, they were looking ahead to that final sacrifice. And here it is. This man is at the feet of that final sacrifice. And the reason Jesus doesn't offer an animal is because he's on his way to offer up himself. He's on his way to be that sacrifice. That's why he came. That's why he came. It was to be that final sacrifice. So Jesus is looking ahead to the moment where he's going to offer up himself. And he does it on the cross. That's why there's no sacrifice for here. And that's the cost that came for this man's full remediation. And that's the cost that comes, friends, for our remediation. Which, if you're believing in Jesus, is yours. That that cost that Jesus paid is for you. And it's yours. And nothing you can do can change that. No amount of effort or work or performance or skill, Bible reading, prayer, coming to church can add to that. And no amount of sin, no matter how dark, no matter how ugly, no matter how vicious, no matter how open, can change that. That his grace is yours. That his mercy is yours. Wherever you're at now, the deep remediation that you and I need is yours. And he's done it for you. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean? What do we do now? First, it's a recognition and understanding that all of us need it. Jesus has provided it. So there's no need to think about, okay, I didn't do this. I did do this this week. Therefore, God must love me because of what I've done or hate me. <laughs> That's not true. Because of what Jesus has done, you were loved by God no matter what. No matter what. If you were here and you were trusting in Jesus like this man did, you were welcomed by God. And there's nothing you can do to change that. It also means that because you can't contribute something, that your friends, your neighbors, that you think are too far gone, are not. That God's grace is for them. That God's mercy is for them. That no one, no matter what their life looks like, and what their affiliation is, no matter where they've come from, are too far from God's grace. You're living proof of that. You are living proof of the grace of Jesus because he saved you. He did that deep remediation that you and I need. And so loving others, no matter where they're at, extending the love of Jesus, no amount of status, popularity, social acceptance, rejection makes you any more loved or hated by God because he loves Jesus and he accepts Jesus. When you're trusting in him, he accepts you too. That's the deep remediation that Jesus offers all of us 
no matter where we are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we are, we are like these men. Some of us outwardly just are a mess. Some of us inwardly are, are, are a mess. All of us, Lord, need your mercy. All of us, Lord, need your grace. Whether we realize it or not. Some of us might think we've done too much. We've gone too far. And that's just not true. There's no amount of running, no amount of distance that is greater than your love and grace to us. There's nothing we can do to change that. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Lord, when we think we're better, we're superior, we're smarter, we're more successful than our neighbor, our friend, the person sitting next to us this morning. Help us, Lord, and humble us to know of the grace and mercy that you've shown us, and we would extend that with grace and mercy towards one another. As you extended that to this man, as you, Jesus, extended that mercy to this man who was rejected, who was despised, who was an outcast, that we would extend that same mercy and grace to those who have been despised, who have been rejected, who are outcasts. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing grace we have in you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.